Uh, it's good to be back with you again this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me and for those of you who don't remember, I'm Jim Hansen. Uh, my wife and I, my wife is here with me this morning. She doesn't usually get to come. Kathy, she loves it when I do this. Would you wave back there? Uh, we've been missionaries with SIM for over 30 years. Most of that time was in Bolivia. Now I continue to serve as a missionary, but as a Bible teacher at the Ethnos 360 Bible Institute in Waukesha, preparing people for missions service. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, missions. I know you're all aware of how the pandemic has affected every aspect of our society, because it's affected every one of us how it's affected us financially, economically, how it's affected us socially. But have you wondered how it's affected us as far as missions is concerned? Because it has impacted us in regard to missions. You know, at Ethnos 360, we prepare people for missionary service. But what happens to missions when international borders close, which has been happening all over the world. Well, for us who are involved in missions and sending missionaries out, the question of what happens to missions when borders close is not a new question. It's a question that we face all the time in missions. Today, 90% of the unreached people groups around the world. Let me just clarify that. These are people groups, tribal groups, ethnic groups that don't have a Bible in their language, don't have a church, and maybe don't have any missionaries. 90% of those groups are in closed countries that don't allow missionaries to come into the country. So when a pandemic hits and borders close, and we start to wonder, well, what's going to happen to missions? It's not a new question for missions. It's something that we face all the time. In fact, it's something the church has always faced in the history of the church. Let me take you back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. The birth of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and Peter gets up to preach, and you know the story at the end of his sermon 3,000 people are baptized. It's the birth of the church, and the church begins. And during that whole first century, the century of the New Testament, you look in the book of Acts and you see missions. Acts chapter 11. Persecution begins in Jerusalem, and so what happens? The church scatters, and believers go all over into different areas, and they take the gospel with them, including the the original 12 disciples. They are sent out as missionaries all over the Roman Empire. Jump over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch is dedicated to prayer and seeking the Lord's will. What should we be doing? And the Spirit says to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas and send them out. And we have Paul and Barnabas sent out as missionaries. And Paul and Barnabas become Paul and Barnabas 
and Silas and Timothy and Titus and Luke. And the story goes on. But what you may not be aware of is by the second century, the church really isn't sending out missionaries anymore. By the second century, the situation has, of the church has changed so dramatically that they're not sending out missionaries anymore. And perhaps not for what you might be thinking. We have persecutions of the church in the first century, but compared to the second century, they're very mild. By the second century, the persecution of the church has gone to a whole different level. By the second century, there are rumors about the church that have spread through the whole Roman Empire. False rumors. They're not true. But you all know how rumors are. When rumors get going, the more titillating it is, the more people want to believe it. And people believe these rumors about Christians. And what are those rumors? The rumors are Christians are cannibals. They eat human flesh. Now just think about that for a moment. Talk about a false rumor that's going to do some damage. People common believe, commonly believe in the Roman Empire that Christians are cannibals or that they marry among siblings. Now another day we can talk about where those misconceptions came from and you can probably make a good guess. They're not true, but they have spread through the whole Roman Empire to the point where they are so convinced of these rumors that if a Christian is taken before the governor, the official policy from the emperor is, ask him if he is really a Christian. Because it might just be his neighbor making trouble for him. And if he says, no, I'm not, we'll just have him throw a little bit of incense onto the fire to the gods and sacrifice and let him go home. But, if someone stands before you as the governor or judge and then says, yes, I am a Christian, that one must be punished. Sold as a slave or executed, that person must be punished. You don't have to be convicted of any of these crimes that Christians are accused of. Just saying you are a Christian is reason enough to be punished. The emperor says, if anyone is so stubborn and so stupid to actually say in front of the governor that they are a Christian, they've got to be punished. And the result is the person become, persecution becomes so worldwide in the Roman Empire, it basically shuts down missions. The sending of missionaries to other parts of the empire basically shuts it down. By the third century, it's actually even worse. By the third century, the church has largely overcome the false rumors, basically by living good lives. And in general, people don't believe them anymore. But by the third century, the Roman emperor, along with the army, has concluded 
that the decline of the Roman Empire is the fault of the Christians because they're leading so many people away from worshiping the gods of Rome. And obviously Rome was so powerful because of the blessing of the gods of Rome. And so the decline must be because the gods of Rome are unhappy. Well, who would be making them unhappy? These Christians who are teaching people not to worship the gods of Rome. So by the third century, the emperor and the Roman army decide the only way to save the Roman Empire is to wipe out the church. And they begin passing edicts to actually seek out and destroy the Christians and their pastors and their churches and completely wipe out the church. And so the missions movement that slowed down and even stopped in the second century, you go into the third century, and it's the same situation. The church has been largely shut down in regards to sending out missionaries. The borders are closed. But here's the amazing part. The church and missions continue during all of this. Not in the model of the first century. The model of missions changes, but it continues. In perhaps the greatest missions movement in the history of the church. Let me give you an illustration. The church begins in Acts chapter 2 with 3,000 baptized believers. The beginning of the 4th century, the emperor Constantine puts an end to the persecutions. He grants freedom of worship to the churches. That's 300 years later. When he does that, our best studies have concluded by that time about one out of every ten people in the entire Roman Empire now confess to be Christians. That would be about six million people. That means for 300 years the church doubled in size every 20 years. All through the first century when they're sending out missionaries, but also all through the second century and the third century where every decade the persecutions are getting worse and the sending out of missionaries has been shut down. But the church continues to grow and expand into new areas even, let me say it one more time, doubling in size every 20 years for 300 years. Let me ask you all a very personal question. Fellowship Bible Church. How long has Fellowship Bible Church been around? Somebody want to help me out on that more or less? 1984? Okay. What would Fellowship Bible Church look like today if it had doubled in size every 20 years? Okay. Church hasn't been around that long. But just to give you a perspective, and we're not talking about 40 years, we're talking about 300 years. They just can't stop the church. So what in the world was the missions movement that produced all of this? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Our Bible passage is in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 2. Did you bring your Bible with you this morning? Would you look that up with me? Would you open up your Bibles and look up, well, would you open up your Bibles or your cell phone? Whichever you use, either is fine with me, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, Let me just pause right there. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Okay, the picture is here. The victorious king, Jesus Christ, is now in his victory parade. And in his victory parade, he is leading us. We are his captives, but not so much captives anymore. We're part of the victory parade. We've joined the army. And so the victorious Christ leading his triumphal victory procession leads us and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? What was this missions movement that started by sending out missionaries in the first century, but then in the second century, they're not able to do that, but missions is still happening? It's what I call a grassroots missions movement. Let me illustrate it this way. When a house is on fire, how are you going to put out the fire? Well, one very effective way is you call the fire department. And the fire department comes out and they pull out their fire hose and they can aim that water, I don't know how far, but right to exactly where the hottest part of the fire, part of, of the fire is. Very effective way to put out the fire. You get that fire hose and you aim it wherever it needs to go. Well, that's missions in the first century. Sending the missionaries out to the hottest places where the gospel hasn't been preached. But you know, there's another way to put out a a fire. Turn on the sprinkler system. You turn on the sprinkler system and you saturate the whole house. Not necessarily aiming at the hottest part, you just saturate the whole house. That's missions in the second century. That's missions in the third century. And that's what Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians. He calls it the pleasing aroma of Christ. They shut down the sending of missionaries, but that aroma of Christ could not be shut down. It kept spreading no matter what they did to try and stop it. There is a church historian, Alan Crider, and I love to read his works. But he has done a study of missions in these days of the early church. And he points out, he says, by the second century, the third century, 
the missions movement in the church doesn't have any great evangelistic campaign or any great missions strategy. The missions movement in those days is a saturation movement where that pleasing aroma of Christ spreads through society despite the persecution. And he says, the study of that missions movement isn't a study of mission strategies. It's not a study of evangelistic campaigns. It is a study of the testimonies of those who come to faith in Christ and decide to follow Jesus despite the fact that Christians are being persecuted. They still want to become Christians. And the question becomes, why do they still want to become Christians even in the midst of persecution? And he has identified four characteristics of this pleasing aroma of Christ. Four characteristics of the believers that those who decide to follow Christ mention again and again and again and say, when I saw this in a Christian, I decided I've got to become a Christian too. This morning, I'm just going to look at two of those. Pastor David asked me if I'd come back in April, and when I come back in April, we'll look at the other two. The characteristics of this pleasing aroma of Christ. What was it that people were seeing? Well, the first is, let me illustrate by a story from the second century. It's, uh, sorry, third century. Bishop Origen. Now, don't be misled. The church in those early days were calling their pastors bishops, just like it does in the New Testament. Today, when I say bishop, you think of some other things. But no. Bishop, just think Pastor Origen. And he tells about discipling a new group of people who were interested in following Christ. And he was reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember the story of the birth of Samuel? And in that story, Hannah, his mother, when the Lord answers her prayers, she offers up a psalm, a song of worship. And as he was reading 1 Samuel 1, he comes to the part of the psalm where she worships the Lord and says, My heart exalts in the Lord. And when he read that part, one of the people in the group began to scream. And Pastor Origen said this was someone who is tormented by a demon. This was someone who was tormented by a demon. And when the word of God was shared, this person began to scream and call out. And Pastor Origen says, when that happened, we realized what was happening. And so we went over to address this issue. Today... In North America, the devil's strategy is largely to convince people that he doesn't exist. He has been moderately successful in convincing people that God doesn't exist. But he's been very successful in convincing people that he doesn't exist. You know what I'm talking about? There is no such thing as the devil. And so his activities, and even tormenting people, 
are usually hidden from most of society. But let me tell you, the devil does exist and he does torment people. If you've lived in the majority world, you will know how many people live in fear of the devil and his evil spirits. Because the devil, in that context, knows that people believe in him, so his strategy is to make them afraid of him. Not too long ago at our church, we had a couple come in who have served in a Buddhist context in Asia. And they shared the story of what it's like to minister to these people, and it was really eye-opening. One of the things that they shared is, everyone around them, they live in great anxiety in regard to the hidden spirit world. He told us the story of a neighbor going to visit the neighbor, coming into the house, and how is everything here? And the mother said, the eve on the house is broken. And he could tell this was something very disturbing. Because if the eve on your house is broken, it means somehow some spirit has gotten into your house. And they were so anxious about this, in the end, they tore down their whole house and rebuilt it because the eve had been broken and they didn't have an explanation for why, except it must have been an evil spirit. And going back to this pleasing aroma of Christ that others saw in the church in the early days, and people still see it today, especially in the majority world, they will say that they saw that Christians were not frightened by the oppressive spirit world. Where does that come from? You know very well, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But don't forget verse 18, which is the key to verse 19. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the Christians believed it, and they lived it, and they did not live in fear, in anxiety about the spirit world. Because they knew they belonged to Jesus, and all authority has been given to our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you ever say amen in this church? Thank you. Christians were not frightened. They did not live in anxiety about this spirit world that so dominated society at the time. I've already said, this still characterizes much of the majority world today. We live most of our lives in Bolivia, and we saw this sort of thing. One of my students who graduated from the seminary 
in Bolivia. I was having lunch with him one day and I asked him, how did you become a Christian? And he said, well, it started with my father. He said, my father was a very powerful, we would say witch doctor. I'm not sure what the right terminology would be, but he was very heavily involved in the occult to get spiritual power in our town and over these evil spirits. And many were afraid of him, but at the same time, as time went on, he was tormented by these same spirits. And he was tormented in his mind, but also in his body. Edgar says, eventually, he was 40 years old, and he looked like he was 80 years old. He could barely walk, even with a cane. And he knew it was somehow related to his involvement with these spirits. The doctors told him he probably didn't have too much longer to live. But one day he was talking to one of the Christians in this town. There's a, a church in this town, in Cochabamba, I've been there. And the Christian said to him, what you need to do is you need to confess your sins to Jesus. And Edgar says, my father just laughed. He said, well, what sins have I ever committed? But he thought about that for the rest of the day. And at the end of the day, Edgar's father left the house and he went out into a field and he got down on his knees and he began to confess all of his sins to Christ and call upon Jesus for deliverance. Edgar says, the next morning when my father returned to the house, I had my father back again. He looked completely healthy and it was a shine to him that I hadn't seen in years and years. Christians were not afraid of these evil spirits because they knew that our Savior is greater. How do you have victory over these evil spirits? Well, it's the same way you have victory over sin and temptation. It's the same formula. It's the formula of salvation. James chapter 4, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your gloom to joy. And your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is what the Christians had found. Humbling yourself before Jesus, confessing your sins, and asking Him for deliverance leads to a life of victory. I don't imagine, again, because of the strategy of the devil here, in the context where we live, there's very many here who live in fear of the evil spirit world, although I do meet them. People who have gotten involved in the occult and then come to regret it. But still, this attribute of the believers that comes through Jesus shines through in our lives when we ask, well, what is it that we do live in fear of? 
Jesus is greater than any of those things. And when we live in submission to Him, He takes away our fears. And we can live that life that is a pleasing aroma to others who do live in fear. Why? Because we serve a Savior who is greater than all of the troubles of this world. That's our first characteristic. They saw in Christians that they were not frightened. Not frightened by the oppressive spirit world, specifically in that context. But in the same way, they did not live in fear and anxiety over the things of this life. The second characteristic, again, that we hear from the testimony of these believers, they lived, and this is a very broad term, but I like it, what we're going to describe as beautiful, righteous lives. Very broad statement, but it's very powerful and it's true. This is what we hear from those who come to Christ despite the persecutions. They saw that Christians lived beautiful, righteous lives. There's a preacher from the second century. His name is Octavius. And he is famous for the saying, We do not preach great things. We live them. What's he talking about? Well, the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus, is very simple. It is. It's very simple. The gospel of Jesus says, You have sinned. Maybe you don't think you have, but you have. You violated God's law. And maybe it's not a scandalous sin that everybody knows about, but you have. You have sinned. All have sinned. And your sin separates you from God. And your sin condemns you to destruction and death. But Jesus paid the price for your sins. And if you will confess your sins and trust in Him, He will forgive all of your sins and give you the Holy Spirit so that you can live in victory over sin every day. It's very simple. Octavia says, we do not preach great things. The gospel is very simple. But we live them. And that's what people were seeing. They were seeing transformed lives. The believers were living just the way Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Christians live beautiful, righteous lives because they counted everything else in life to be secondary to seeking the kingdom of Jesus, to seeking Jesus Himself, to drawing closer to Jesus. Everything else took a, second, uh, took a back seat to seeking first the kingdom of Christ. Let me give you a quote from another preacher in the second century. He wrote a letter to the emperor telling uh, the emperor, you know, we're not the bad people 
that these rumors say we are. And here's his description of the church. He says, We who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. He says, We used to seek after fornication. And that was our greatest delight. Now our greatest delight is in self-control. That's what gives us joy. He says, We who made use of magic arts have dedicated ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. He said, We used to look for magical spiritual power. But he says, Now our greatest desire is to know God. He says, We who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property now bring what we have into a common fund and share with everyone in need. Our greatest joy used to be to make as much money as we possibly could. He says, now our greatest joy is to have enough so we can bring some to the church where we use it to help people in need. That's our greatest joy. And finally, he says, we who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their customs... Now, after the manifestation of Christ, live together and pray for our enemies. You know, some of the racial divides that we've had in our country in the last months, year or so, here's a solution. Comes right from the Bible. We who hated and killed one another and we wouldn't associate with people who were different, now we live together in love and we pray for our enemies. At the time, people looked to Greek philosophy as the best path to learn how to live an upright, good life. And Greek philosophy provided a path through intensive study, self-discipline, and preparation to become an upright, respected person. And these Greek philosophers found the Christians to be despicable and they looked down on them. One Greek philosopher says, because among these Christians, the most illiterate and bucolic yokels, hillbillies, rednecks, whatever kind of insult you want to put in here, think that they alone know the right way to live. And Greek philosophers resented that. Because they were convinced, no, it takes years of study in order to learn how to be a good, upright person. Christians didn't think so. People would come into the church, let's say, the poorest, most uneducated female servant girl in the household would follow Christ. Can't read or write, never had any formal training, but eventually she becomes the most trusted person in the whole household because she has followed Christ. And Greek philosophers resented that sort of thing. Now she thinks she knows better than us how to live? Well, everybody else in the household sees it. 
Greek philosophers don't see it. They resent it. Still happens today. In Bolivia, most everyone, whatever economic uh, level you are in society, most people have somebody who comes and helps them in their house. We would call that person a maid. Two of our missionaries, Greg and Patty, they moved into a new neighborhood. They started to get to know their neighbors and started to share with them their faith in Christ and their neighbor right across the street from their house as he heard them talk about Christ, he said, you know something? You sound like our maid. She also talks about Jesus the way you do. And you know something? She is the only maid that we've ever had that we trust. We can leave money or valuables laying around the house and don't have to worry that she'll steal them. She's the most trustworthy person we've ever had in our house. Beautiful, righteous lives. Because their desire for God was greater than any other desire that they had. I need to finish up here. Oh, I'm sure you, like me, you're tired of this pandemic. You know... We're tired of the way it's affected our lives, and I'm tired of the way it's affected missions. You know, over at the Bible school, we have a wall right by the director's office, and it's covered with letters from people in the majority world, letters written by ethnic groups, people in ethnic groups, pleading with us for a missionary. Now, that may sound incredible to you, but we have a whole wall of them. Come and tell us about God. And we have a whole wall of these letters. Well, over this last year, we've had so many of our graduates who have finished their training, and they've had churches and individuals step up and say, we'll pray for you and we'll support you. And the Lord has directed them to a certain country where there's an unreached people group, and they've even gotten ready to book their tickets and they can't book their tickets. They can't go anywhere. The borders are closed. The airlines aren't flying. You can't get there anymore. And it's a discouraging time to look at all of these letters and have people ready to go, and we can't send them because of the pandemic. But you know what? I have another perspective on this pandemic. I don't know if you will remember back in 1992, Sarajevo in Bosnia was besieged by the Bosniaks. It was besieged for three years. They tried to cut them off. And during that time, under siege, these people who lived in the city of Sarajevo were subject to, at random times, artillery shells that would fall into neighborhoods and even snipers up in the hills who would just shoot people at random walking in the streets. Men, women, and children. It was an awful time. It lasted for three years. But you talk to people today, and you will meet many people who will tell you, I kind of miss those days. What? 
I kind of miss those days. You'll hear that sentiment a lot. What they're talking about is during those times, that terrible crisis, they said in our city there was a spirit like there's never been before of people helping one another. Strangers helping one another. And I think about this pandemic and I ask, what are we going to remember about this pandemic? Are we going to remember the debates about whether you should wear a mask or not? My hope is that during this time, as we face these difficulties, we get really serious about becoming more like Christ and seeking His kingdom. And I would love it if we would look back at this time and say, you know, I miss those days because we learned to love each other and love Christ more than we ever had before. I'm going to close in prayer. And that's going to be my prayer. Would you bow your heads and would you pray that with me? Our dearest Father, you know how this pandemic has disturbed our lives and given us problems and difficulties. And you know the ways that we've complained about it. May, even as we may be approaching the end of it, may it be your powerful instrument to teach us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another, that we would be that powerful, pleasing aroma of Christ that would spread through our community and even through the world in a way that the world cannot stop. Make us more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.